Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. It's interesting that it seems the more we have technology to save us time, the more we complain about not having enough time. Before the digital revolution, we never heard as much talk about everyone not having as much time. Just think about how much time we spend setting up our CRMs and our to-do list apps, when maybe a simple list in a notebook might actually have been faster and more efficient. And while the technology of everything from dating apps to GPS may make things more efficient, do they limit our ability to see the wider world and in so doing make us just cogs in a wheel that sacrifices our humanity and sense of wonder? We're going to talk about this focus on efficiency today with my guest, Edward Tenner. Edward Tenner is a distinguished scholar of the Smithsonian's Lemelson Center for the Study of Invention and Innovation. He's a visiting scholar at Rutgers University's Department of History. He was a visiting lecturer at the Humanities Council at Princeton, and his essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. He's the author of the previous book, Why Things Bite Back, and it is my pleasure to welcome Edward Tenner back to this program to talk about his new book, The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. Edward Tenner, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. When the Industrial Revolution came along and there was much talk about efficiency, particularly with respect to what you call uh, continuous process efficiency, was there the same kind of concern? Was there the same potential for an efficiency paradox as we see today in the context of the digital revolution? There were many uh, criticisms of the technology of the industrial revolution. There were certainly socialists and workers' leaders who were deploring the conditions of the working class, of the uh, unsafe uh, the unsafe machinery in mills and in mining. Uh, there were there were many many problems, but nobody really said at the time that all of these efficient technologies were were making people less efficient. They they had other other accusations against it. By the way, by continuous process, I, I mean the way in which things that had been made before one by one for example sheets of paper in the 18th century had to be made individually and so you can see how relatively expensive books had to be when each sheet of paper had to be uh, manufactured by hand in a, in a little mold and then set out to dry in the 19th century some industrialists found ways to produce paper in continuous rolls and that made possible the growth of mass literacy, of newspapers, of many of the other features of 19th century culture. There was also the production of continuous rolls of steel. For example, even today, major appliances are made not from sheet steel, but from steel that arrives at the factory in a roll and then is cut off and shaped by special machinery. So we're living in, uh, still in a world of, of that kind of of that kind of continuous process efficiency, and I'm talking about a new kind of efficiency, which uh, I call platform efficiency, in which it's really a matter of servers that are run centrally and that are bringing buyers and sellers of goods and services together with a minimum of expense 
and huge profits for the people who are becoming the new middlemen. How do we define this platform efficiency? Is the idea just that it is, as, as Bill Gates once referred to it, as frictionless, or is there something else that is part of this idea of platform efficiency? There, there are other parts of it, too. For example, uh, mobile computing, the ubiquity of computing, the ability to have in our pocket something that is more powerful than the supercomputers of the 1980s. That is, a, that is a huge difference. There is also the importance of artificial intelligence in analyzing data. For instance, we all benefit when credit card companies use artificial intelligence programs to spot purchases that are not part of our existing pattern and to flag them as, as possible fraud. We would, would really be in a, in a terrible uh, state without that kind of artificial intelligence. Then there's also crowdsourcing, and Amazon, for example, was a pioneer of that in encouraging people to uh, rate uh, goods and also its own services. Companies discovered that even by allowing negative reviews to appear, they would increase sales and increase uh, people's uh, engagement. And now, of course, we have machine learning, so it's possible now for uh, artificial intelligence programs not only to be programmed to do things, but to learn how to recognize patterns as they go. And so they uh, they are they are getting stronger and stronger as a result of their own experience. This, is, this makes this a very exciting time, but as I'm arguing, it also is bringing problems. And one of the problems and one of the things that this does in this concept of platform efficiency is it strives to take the human element out of the equation as much as possible. There is a, a kind of almost an ideology now that anything people can do, bots can do better. And there is a tendency to discount any kind of intuition as hopelessly out of date and, and error-filled. And this is reinforced by the interpretation of some social science findings about the unconscious biases of people's reasoning. And that is very true research. I'm not uh, criticizing the research, but there, there's also another school of social science which is equally important and should be kept in mind that shows that people's intuitions actually can be very valuable and that there are some uh, caveats in the other school of research. And one of the areas that you talk about where this, a good example of this is with respect to something like GPS in our cars. GPS is a great example because the newest GPS systems I use, for example, uh, Waze, which is a uh, which is, which relies on Google Maps. And uh, the great thing about Waze is that people who subscribe to Waze are able to uh, to contribute to it. For example, by correcting a map, by entering the prices of uh, gasoline at a at a service station, by indicating that there is an accident or that there is a radar cop lurking around the curve. Uh, all these things are, are part of Waze, and it's, it's really a wonderful program. However, if you use Waze entirely and you don't take a critical view of it, Waze can um, lead people astray. Now, there, there's one issue uh, of Waze directing people onto residential streets and 
the residents of those streets protesting and trying to sabotage the program by falsely entering the location of non-existent police cars and that sort of thing. Some communities have even uh, posted signs closing their streets to to non-residents. So that, that's a big issue, but that's not really the one that I discovered. I, I joined Ways actually because I was really fascinated by this controversy, and I decided that the only way to really evaluate it is to become a participant observer, which, which I have been. And one of the fascinating things about Waze is that uh, very often it really does, in fact, usually, it finds the quickest way between two points. It showed me, for example, a series of back roads that, that lead, led to my... Uh, led to my um, um, hold on a second. See, here, here's a very... Uh, by the way, here's something very funny. Um, my cell phone has been on, and it it seemed to hear the words "Hey Siri," and it says, "Hey Siri, some back roads that lead lead to my like my love. I'm well destined to hear it. There's a very La Bella something very funny in my cell phone, and so forth. It has been my cell phone as though to confirm everything we've been talking about. Uh, suddenly woke up and decided that I was dictating to it. So that's a better illustration of what I had in mind than anything I was planning to say today. But, uh, but I also discovered that Waze, getting back to Waze, Waze has a, uh, uh, a, a tendency occasionally to give you totally wrong directions. I was in northern New Jersey, and I was about to go south on the Garden State Parkway back home, and Waze was telling me to go north. And I thought, well, there's a lot of congestion here. Maybe Waze was telling me some smart way around all the traffic. But I, I checked it, and that wasn't the case. It's just wrong sometimes. Now, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's right. But when it's wrong, it can, be, it can be terribly wrong. So that's why I use paper maps in addition. To, and I check my route on the paper map, and the paper map gives me a sense of the entire terrain. It gives me a sense of what kinds of landscapes I'll be going through, what, what landmarks to look for, uh, what places I might want to, uh, to stop at. So I argue in the efficiency paradox that the, the two really are complementary, the analog and the digital, that each is really very good for something, but you don't want to use it for what it's not good for, and above all, that the efficient electronic means uh, occasionally has some kind of glitch and if you don't use your common sense then you're going to suffer for it and those in technology would argue that that even if that's correct and i've been led astray by ways many times myself that the, the real answer is we just have we just need more big data and the algorithms have to be better there's nothing wrong with saying that. In other words, I, I think it's it's really great that people are improving the programs, and in many ways the pro programs get better. But I think it's misleading for advocates to imply that someday they're going to get perfect. Uh, they're they're going to reduce the number of errors, yes, but in reducing them, they may be introducing the possibility of new and possibly even more serious errors. And that's always a risk that, that, um, that when uh, a, a system becomes really, really safe, the 
the problems, uh, routine problems go away, but you could be preparing the way for a, a really um, uh, a big new problem. For example, in the case of, uh, of the uh, uh, earthquake, um, earthquake uh, proof design in, in California, there have been a lot of buildings built to a certain standard and now it, it seems that that standard may not be adequate for the kinds of earthquakes that are, that are expected. And meanwhile, that standard has given people the confidence to build more and more. So one of the problems of this constant improvement is that, that people start to act on the promise that now we really have the answer, and it turns out that the answer is not, is not quite there yet. It does seem that one of the keys to this platform efficiency that we're talking about is this idea of data and more and more of it. And you use Uber, for example, as, as an example of this. Uh, yes, the, the, um, the, there, is, there is a lot that, uh, that analysis of, of data can do. In fact, I mentioned in the book that, that Uber has a value in real terms of a multiple of the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1900 or so, even though it has very few material assets and the Pennsylvania Railroad had thousands of miles of track, a thousand locomotives, thousands of, of cars, and some of the most valuable real estate in the country. So people have an enormous expectation that Uber's ability to manage data will transform not only transportation, but, but everything else. And yet, I recall that when I spoke at uh, TED in 2011, there was a person from Uber who was painting a very vivid picture of how Uber would make the cities much more livable, how it would lead to less congestion on the roads, and the most recent reports from New York, Philadelphia, and other cities has been that the proliferation of Uber cars has actually led to more congestion, and Uber also um, contributes to uh, the uh, decline of public transportation ridership. I, I have a, an app on my phone called Move It, which is, uh, or was originally, designed to show you the quickest way to get from point A to point B by public transportation. So it was, it was the green, pedestrian-friendly uh, counterpart of Waze. And I noticed something uh, the last time I used it, which is that now Move It will show you various routes and suggest that you take Uber instead. I don't know if Uber owns it or if they have some kind of deal with Uber because there aren't other ride or taxi services that, that are recommended there. So Move It then kind of uses the public transportation schedules as a, as a lost leader uh, to, be a, um, to, to encourage people to uh, ride, ride with Uber instead. And so this, this suggests to me how, how uh, the, the, the economy of efficiency can, can move in all kinds of unexpected directions and in a direction that really is not uh, favorable to uh, the environment or to uh, urban mobility. How much of this has to do with, or, or what part of the equation is the interface between digital technology and human beings? And, and, and is there something in that interface that is part of this whole issue of efficiency? 
There, there definitely is. The, the interface is really designed in a lot of ways to help uh, nudge and, and shape behavior, as the example of, of, mm-hmm. of Move It shows. So when you, uh, when you use an app, uh, the app is kind of guiding you in, in certain directions, and, and there, are, there are user interface designers. I've spoken to a user interface group who are extremely adept in uh, finding what is really easiest for people to use. However, showing people what is easiest is not necessarily the, sh- the same as showing them what's going to be most interesting. And one of the points that I make is that this ease of use can very easily lead us to overlook all of the positive sides of, of losing our way a little bit once in a while, that, that we sometimes discover things because we take a wrong turn. Uh, we, we discover something unexpected because we are, we are a little bit inefficient. And I'm saying that, that sometimes it's really good to be optimally inefficient. I, I even have the phrase inspired inefficiency. That is, there's nothing wrong with efficiency. Um, it, it's really very good most of the time, but every once in a while, you need to break out of that, and you need to have something unexpected and accidental. And those surprises are often uh, often have the biggest payoffs. Beyond the GPS, dating apps seem like a good example of that. Yeah, I'm I'm really not familiar with with how uh, how dating apps work, but the the dating app really has a has a kind of built-in assumption that. Uh, people's compatibility is determined by their appearance or by their interests. I did I did uh, uh, subscribe to one of the services uh, uh, quite a, quite a while ago, but the, the the problem with it is that that what really makes people click is is very often a matter of chemistry, and you would not necessarily predict who is going to be uh, an interesting companion um, just by the the lists of their favorite songs or their 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 interests or their um, or their travel so i think the dating app is based on a on a model of human attraction that doesn't do justice to uh, the real chemistry between people yeah i mean it's based i suppose on the same assumptions that that google or netflix take into account when they try to tell us what we're going to be interested in with respect to books or movies Exactly, and there's the same the same problem because we don't necessarily want just a continuation of our present taste. We want to explore. We want to try something different. And the problem with big data and machine learning is that they're very good at successfully recognizing and using established patterns, but they're not very good at suggesting what would be a creative way to break out of those patterns to do something that would be uh, more rewarding than the groove you've been in. Uh, I've seen this in publishing. I worked in publishing, and one of the fascinating things about publishing is how many of the really important and successful books, because they violated a, a lot of the principles and rules that editors had learned for what makes a successful book, originally were turned down by many publishers. For example, Harry Potter was mm-hmm. one of the biggest uh, franchises in the in the history of literature 20 publishers turned that down because it, it wasn't artificial intelligence this was this was the conventional wisdom of editors that that this book uh, first book in the series 
was going to go nowhere. Uh, the book that's often considered the greatest American novel, Moby Dick, was a critical failure at first. The critics could really not understand where what what Herman Melville had been doing. Where were the the great books that he had written before? It was a really really strange thing, and it took a while for people to see uh, what a great book it was. So the the uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence have a lot of the same problems as conventional decision making by by professionals that that they're they're very good at following what has been successful in the past but they're not necessarily terribly good at recognizing creative possibilities and that recognition can't really be efficient it has to be wasteful because most of the time when you're trying something really new it flops but when it succeeds it it can succeed in a in a momentous way how does all of this relate to the use of our time because there is this interesting paradox as well that the more efficient we get, the more technology supposedly helps us with all of this, the more we seem to complain about never having enough time. That's right. One of the, one of the paradoxes is that, that, the, that the time-saving technology indirectly can create new, new needs to, to use time, new, new demands, so you're, you're you're keeping a schedule, but there, there are also all kinds of reminders that 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 pop up, um, and it's it's very possible to to lose yourself in all of the details that are concerned about maintaining this this uh, system for time management. And do you see that continuing? What role do you see data and and suppose this supposed quest for efficiency playing in that as it relates to how we use our time? Well, one of the most interesting examples that I found was in healthcare. Uh, the medical authorities, for at least a, a century and a half, have been trying to systematize medical data to improve outcomes, uh, gathering information on medical treatments, uh, classifying them, and then analyzing uh, which treatments work. And that's up to a point that's, that's really great. Uh, evidence-based medicine is, is, is very, very important. So many established treatments are ineffective, and, and studies can really do a lot to improve uh, human health. So I'm not, I'm not at all against it. But there, there is a, a problem, though, and that is that although the system may be extremely efficient in analyzing the data, entering the data in the system is still done very inefficiently. In, in other words, in a, in a doctor's office, uh, the doctor, or very often a, a, a specialist, will enter a code for every procedure. And the codes have been getting longer and longer. One example that I give is that there are different codes for bites by different species of birds. So there's a, I think there's a separate code for a bite from a from an, uh, you know, an Amazon parrot and, and a macaw. <laughs> and I joke that in the future, maybe there will be other classifications. For example, was it, was it a, a blue and gold macaw, a sphinx's macaw, a, you know, a hyacinth blue macaw? Uh, so doctors are now spending um, many hours uh, gathering that information supposedly 
to improve health care. And while they're gathering it, uh, they can't pay attention to and, and listen to their patients as much as they would like to. So to me, that just shows how the pursuit of efficiency through big data can actually make people uh, less efficient at what they do because they have to be feeding the data into the machine. It does seem that all of this is trying to find some kind of a right balance, if there is such a thing, between technology and human intervention. And, And it always seems to be the struggle of trying to find that balance. Yes, I I suggest in the book that the digital and the analog, uh, machine learning and human intuition, uh, really complement each other. I give the example of a trip that I took, and I I had printed maps, and I also had Waze. And the printed map showed me an overview of the terrain that Waze just couldn't do. Uh, on the other hand, if I'd relied entirely on printed maps, I was looking for a restaurant in the western suburbs of Washington on my way back from uh, western Virginia to New Jersey. And if I had relied on conventional maps uh, in all those little streets and the way they intersect with arterial streets and, and, and the Internet, uh, I mean, and the interstates, uh, then I would have been... Um, I, uh, I might very well have gotten into an accident trying to read the maps, and, and Waze guided me very accurately, turn by turn. So to me, that trip showed that the two really are in balance, that, that you use each one for what it's good for. I, I also uh, use a lot of online newspaper and magazine articles, but I also value the analog layout of a printed newspaper. It, it really summarizes the information in a way that I have not seen any uh, web-only publication do. And yet, I rely a lot on the web and on web-only content. So I, I see the two as, as mutually reinforcing. And, and I wonder, finally, if, if this is generational, if, if gener- two generations from now will have eliminated paper maps completely or eliminated paper newspapers completely. Well, people were... People were predicting that, and people always um, make uh, assumptions based on extrapolating whatever the, uh, the the trend happens to be at the moment. People have predicted that there would be no more Native American cultures. Uh, people have predicted that uh, that religion would be would be on its way out and we'd be a completely secular society. So people people very often act as though they were protesting against all those predictions and saying, uh, you know, not on my watch, it won't. And also new generations are often rebelling against the predictions of the last generation. And, and they sometimes turn defiantly to the, uh, to the old. I mean, think, for example, of a generation for whom all kinds of artificial foods and, and food additives were the future, and these old-fashioned organic farmers uh, were, were, were really uh, on, on their way out. Uh, and yet we, we've had a, a real, uh, although um, technology continues to, to develop, there is, is a very powerful counter-movement in, in favor of a natural and, and, and organic food. So to me as a historian, it's it's really very myopic to say that uh, what seems to be a trend now is going to just 
go on and on and on in the future. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon was predicting, for example, that printed books were going to uh, going to be on their way out. That publishers as we know them would not be needed because he believed everybody would be publishing through through Amazon and eliminating these intermediaries. And actually, the uh, proportion of books sold in print has gone back up right. and the proportion of e-books has gone down. So it's very dangerous to believe that any observed trend is just going to go on forever. Edward Tenner. His book is The Efficiency Paradox, What Big Data Can't Do. It's just out from Knopf. Edward, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you so much, Jeff.